as we come to the close of the Gospel of Mark, discovering Jesus, we are in Matthew, excuse me, we're in Matthew, hello, we're in Mark 15, we'll pick up in verse 42 in just a moment, we left off last week as Jesus had been crucified, and we went over in great detail all the crucifixion, all that, that was entailed in that. Jesus breathed his last, into your hands I commit my spirit. And uh, look at verse 40, there were women looking on. Now I, I'm taking you back to verse 40 for a particular reason. Um, and as we look at all of this, I want you to recognize that as we get into chapter 16, the resurrection of Jesus, we are going to be dealing with one of the most controversial historical events in the history of mankind, and probably one of the most important controversial uh, events in the history of mankind. If the resurrection is not true, then everything Jesus said is a lie, and we're wasting our time. There's, we're still in our sins. There's no forgiveness. There, there, maybe there's no God. I mean, who knows if, there's, if the resurrection is not true. But if the resurrection is true, then everything Jesus said is right, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so it all hinges on the resurrection. And even now we live in a day when pastors in pulpits are doubting the actual historical truthfulness of the resurrection. Well, it's just meant to be symbolic, and I looked up some research. I won't bore you with it. But a lot of pastors that fill pulpits now are not believing that the, res- that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was true. It's just meant to be an analogy. It's just meant to be uh, symbolic. It's a symbolic resurrection. And I think what I want you to see as we go through this, and why I took you back to verse 40, and, and a large part of the time I'll spend today, is uh, giving you the information. Because then you have to make a choice. That's how life works, isn't it? People, you, ha- you have data, information. And with that information you have to weigh out its accuracy, its validity, and then make a choice about what to do. I mean, again, you get scientific reports about omega-3s and fiber in your diet and pomegranate juice and carrot juice, and you hear people give, you know, information, and then you, you make a decision based on that. Well, maybe if more fiber can lower my cholesterol, then maybe I should eat more fiber. You know, you don't even see the research, but you just believe them. And if you take mankind's word about things like health, then how much more should you take and heed the Word of God for spiritual decisions? So I can't tell you what to believe. I can only tell you that the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. And you have to decide if you believe it or not. Back to verse 40, there were three women looking on. Women looked on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joses, and Salome. We'll talk about them a little bit more as we go through today. Uh, who had followed him and ministered to him while he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there was this group of women, and Mark names some of the more well-known women. These were women that likely were still alive when Mark was writing. They were women known among the church. These are meant to be presented to you as eyewitness accounts. They will see that they were at the crucifixion. Now, we get into verse 42. We meet a, a Joseph of Arimathea. Let's read 
15.42, Now when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now we, we find out that he didn't do this by himself. A man named Nicodemus was with him. You remember Nicodemus, uh, John chapter 3. This is, uh, he comes out, you know, saying, hey, he comes it to him at night kind of secretly and hey, no one can do the things you do except if they're sent from God. And Jesus tell, tells him about um, being born of the Spirit. You, you must be born again. And he was the teacher in Israel. Nicodemus was considered to be probably the top rabbinical instructor at his, of his day in Israel and among those rabbis studying uh, the Old Testament. And he is one that there is there with Joseph of Arimathea, both of them prominent council members. These were well-respected guys. Uh, the other Gospels tell us some details. Uh, tells us, John tells us that uh, Joseph was a secret disciple because he feared the Jews, the other Jews, those that were on the council with him, the Sanhedrin, that ruling body of the Jews. He, he, he stood a lot uh, to lose by being outward about his following of Jesus. He stood uh, to lose his position. He stood to lose his respect. He stood to lose financially. He was also a very rich man, we're told in another gospel. He was very wealthy. All of that uh, had kept him sort of maybe in the same place you are. For whatever reason, you know, you're a follower of Jesus, but there's certain people in your life and certain groups you're around where you just kind of, you don't really make it known. And so you're in good company with Joseph of Arimathea. He was that same way for a long time until the crucifixion. That's what really brought him to a place of publicly identifying with Jesus. So he was a wealthy man. We're also told, remember, as they made the vote to crucify or to, to turn Jesus over to the Jews that he'd been, or to the uh, Romans, that he was guilty. They, they met early in the morning and then they met again. Uh, and met, met in the middle of the night, I'm sorry, and then early in the morning. And then they turned him over to the Romans. Well, Joseph of Arimathea was part of that ruling body voting about Jesus' future, voting to put him to death, except the Bible tells us that Joseph voted against it. He thought maybe he could make a difference by being involved in leadership in his church, so to speak, or leadership in that group. He thought his, his words, his voice would have it make a difference, and he found out that uh, it didn't. He, he cast his vote, but he was the minority. And we're going to find out that in Joseph's life, actions spoke louder than words. But he did not consent. He wasn't agreeing to, because he was a secret disciple of Jesus's. So, uh, and again, a well-respected man, an honorable, uh, prominent council member. He was also waiting for the kingdom. He was looking forward to the Messiah coming as much as anybody else. He had as much hopes in Jesus as anybody else had. That maybe this guy is really the guy that's going to set up the kingdom. All the disciples had hoped that. They had all scattered at the crucifixion. And now here's Joseph. Jesus crucified, died on the cross, a spear stabbed in his side. Uh, out comes blood, water. He is dead. And his body is now hanging on the cross. By the way, uh, typically, unless you had a family member 
that would take you down. Your body would stay on the cross, decomposing there. A very, remember, to, hide, to die on a cross was, an, was the most dishonorable death you could die. And then if you got a burial, you'd be buried in a common criminal's grave. So maybe, your fam- maybe you had family and they were willing to be identified with you and take you down off the cross and, and deal with your burial. But most bodies of criminals were there just to, either to just hang there till they decomposed or to be eaten by animals and birds. Because you weren't, you weren't crucified but a couple feet off the ground. So animals could, could get a hold of you and tear bits of pieces of you off and birds would come in and eat your flesh and things, lovely things like that. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Um, anybody going to lunch today? <laughs> so that's what would typically happen. But for the Jews, they had certain rules about how to deal with corpses, with bodies. Now, notice, it says he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It was a very daring thing for him to do that. He was definitely, uh, you know, moved to uh, to show Jesus this act of love and kindness. You know, we're, even if, like if you've been in the military, military if, if somebody dies, you don't leave that body behind. You take those bodies with you. Because we consider it a very honorable thing to give a body a proper burial. And so Joseph of Arimathea, seeing Jesus hanging on the cross, being a secret disciple, not only did it put him in jeopardy with his role with the Sanhedrin, I mean, to be ostracized, to be excommunicated, to lose a lot of his wealth, all of his power. I mean, he, he risked his job, his livelihood. He risked everything. And we see that through the Bible. We see that followers of Jesus are oftentimes put in positions to risk or sacrifice everything to be identified with Christ. We saw that with the widow and her two mites. She gave everything, sacrificed everything. We saw that with the woman, Mary, who came and poured out, broke that costly uh, broke the alabaster flask and poured out that costly ointment on Jesus and washed his feet. It, it was her life savings. It was a year's wages. And she makes that sacrifice. And, and the, the disciples say, why this waste? But from God's eyes, it was different. Joseph of Arimathea is moved. And I, and I wonder what it takes, what it will take to move you. What, you know, we need, the church needs Christians Willing not to be safe, but to be daring. When's the last time you did something in identifying with Christ that you would consider was daring for you to do? And, and that's, that can be different for each person. For some of you, daring is fighting a crowd of people you don't know because you struggle with panic attacks and you struggle with anxiety, anxiety disorders, but you want to hear about this Jesus. So you'll come in late to the church because you want to let everybody get in there first. You don't want to have to deal with people. And you'll come and you'll sit here, but then you'll leave real fast. And for some of you, that was a daring thing to do. So I'm not condemning, I'm commending you for that. Maybe that was a daring thing to identify with Christ, just to come to church. But for others, it might be something else. But I appreciate that about Joseph of Arimathea, how he moved from being a secret disciple. The other thing that he is giving up, he's sacrificing is, Remember, it was the Passover. And one of the rules they had, I'll read it to you, Numbers 19.11 says, whoever touches a dead body is unclean for seven days. 
means they can't take part in any of the rituals. They can't take part in any of the, ce- the celebrations. It was the Passover. The Passover lasted, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted for seven days. And so Joseph, in doing this, coming in contact with the body of Christ, is now saying, I'm going to be unclean for seven days. Nicodemus, same thing. They're going to miss the whole Passover. They're not going to be able to participate. When you were coming into to Jerusalem for the Passover, they had whitewashed all the tombs, so just inadvertently no one would step on a grave and be unclean and miss the Passover. It was so important to them to celebrate the Passover. So that's another way he was sort of risking things by, uh, by taking this body down, being unclean for seven days. They wanted to get the body off before it was the, the Passover, before the Sabbath started. Verse 44 says, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Again, people lasted a long time potentially on the cross, just suffering there, hanging there between life and death uh, until they were asphyxiated or their heart ruptured or whatever it was was the cause of death. So when he found out from a centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And again, Nicodemus with him. Look at verse 46. Then he, brought, he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. I mean, just can you imagine what it would have been like? He and Nicodemus, maybe, you know, again, Joseph being a wealthy man, maybe there were a few servants there with him. But and there is the brutalized body of the man he'd been following secretly for a few years, the man maybe he'd pinned his hopes on, and now that man had been pinned to a cross. So he has no expectation that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. This is sort of a final act of honor. No doubt thought Jesus an honorable man. Did not agree with what the Jews had accused him of. Did not agree with the way he'd been treated. And now is his chance to, at least in his own heart, do the right thing. I can't... I, I, could, I, I wasn't able to save him from being crucified, but to appease my, maybe his own guilt, he said, I'm going to give him an honorable burial. No expectation of resurrection. So there they, they go, and they, they have to take the body down. Still, he's only been on the cross for three hours. No, I'm sorry, six hours on the cross. Bloody beaten the hands how do they get the nails out how do they get the feet out and the hands are still hanging you know it's just like just the the dead weight of the body and the emotional part of that just were their tears shed by them as they did that so they do what it takes they get the body down they wrap it in in linen and they and joseph again another act a final act of honor and sacrifice Instead of a criminal's grave, he gives him his own tomb. Expensive, no doubt. It had been hewn out of the rock, hewn out of the side, very close to the crucifixion site. They wrap the body. They wash the body first. It was a Jewish custom to wash the body. So all of the deep wounds on his back, the wounds on his face, his, his body having been pierced, all of that, they're just washing off the blood stains as best they can. Some of it is dried on by this point. Uh, some of it's still oozing, no doubt. And they're just prepping his body for burial. And they wrap him, not mummified, the spices and the things they bought. Nicodemus brings 100 pounds of spices. 
to wrap. And that was to hide the smell of the decomposing body. So they wrap it up and put it in the tomb, in this new tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. And then they would roll a stone, a very heavy stone, against the door of the tomb. You've seen the pictures, a big round stone that travels in a channel. It would roll downhill in front of the the tomb so grave robbers couldn't get in. Extremely heavy. Once it's rolled there, really hard to get it away, uh, but multiple people could could handle it, could do it. Um, And that's where, as the, the stone rolls against the door, look at verse 47, Mary Magdalene and the mother of Josie's observed, notice that, observed, Back in verse 40, there were women looking on from afar. Now, in verse 47, these, these women observed where he was laid. So Salome is missing from this. Evidently, she has left by this point. There's three women at the death observing. There are two women at the burial observing exactly where he's buried. They're watching the process. And, and just from a human standpoint... You know, one of the things I I get exposed to as a pastor more than the average person is death and and funerals because of we have a large body. And and it's it's people from the church, it's family members. And one of the things that that I tend to do is I usually will stay and and watch them lower the body into the ground because it's closure. It's, It's... when a burial is very final. We've been out in the garden these last couple of weeks. Saturdays is our gardening day, and we planted, uh, specifically, I was planting beet seeds. I don't know if you've ever planted a garden. But beet seeds are pretty small, not as small as some other seeds, but they're really ugly. They're just really ugly. They look like little crumbs of bread or something. They're just little teeny, they're hard, and they're kind of a little bit spiky. And so I had my hand full of these little beet seeds, because I love beets. I know, that's really odd, but I do. Um, so I'm b- burying them in the garden, and it's like, how does anything happen? It seems so final. As I put the seeds in, and you cover them over with dirt, and you figure, well, that's it, you know? And, and days go by, and days go by, and nothing's happening. You just figured they're there. But now, after all this rain we've had, Life has come out of there. And you just scratch your head and you go, how in the world does that happen? This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and when that comes out, it's going to go to flower. I mean, it's, it's, how does that flower and that, that vegetable come out of that little teeny, how is it in there? I mean, it seems like it should be the right size. But for us, and for them at the time, as the women are watching, this is it. It's final. The door is closed. The story is over. Or so they think. If it wasn't for the resurrection, there'd be no church. The disciples had scattered. Everybody thought it was over. And they're watching. Now, verse 1 of chapter 16 says, now when the Sabbath was passed, now remember, it was Friday, the Sabbath begins at sundown, 6 p.m. roughly estimated, 6 p.m. on Friday night, and that'll go till 6 p.m. Saturday night, 
They weren't able to do any work on that day. They, were, they had to celebrate and keep the Sabbath. So the, that day, Jesus' body is in the grave, and nothing is, is going on. So by the time it's the evening time, it's too late, too dark for the women to come to the grave. So they wait till very early, as early as they can, on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. The Sabbath was passed, and now again we see Mary Magdalene. We remember her, the woman who Jesus cast seven demons out of. Mary, the mother of James. That's James. The, there's two Jameses in the discipleship group. Uh, one is James the, the greater, uh, and one is James the less. So how'd you like to be? I'm James the less. It's probably a good title for you, you know? Just to be reminded, I'm James the less. J- the less prominent of the Jameses. James, the, the uh, brother of John, was the more prominent. And Salome. So now we have three women looking on at the crucifixion, two women looking on at the burial, and now Salome has rejoined the group this morning. And Salome is also known as the wife of Zebedee. Zebedee is the father of who, guys? James and John, the sons of thunder. So this is the woman that approached Jesus and said, hey, I want to talk to you about my two boys. Can they sit when you come into your kingdom one on your right hand and one on your left. I think they deserve prominence. They're good boys. They got good lineage. They need to be sitting and, and reigning with you, one on your right, one on your left. I wonder how she looks back at that now. Now she's on her way. All those hopes and dreams shattered of her sons actually making it out of the fishing industry and being important in Israel. Her own hopes. Now, they followed first. She seems to be, have followed then Jesus as one of the women who supported him, ministered to him along the way. Maybe she came to Jesus through her sons. That happens. A lot of times it's children being led to the Lord by their parents, but sometimes it's children. And John, many people think he's probably about 18 years old at this time. Wouldn't you love to see an 18-year-old, 17-year-old, 16-year-old young man or woman get saved, start to be a disciple of Jesus, and then because of that, your, your parents start to follow too? Start to see a change in your life? Like, normal 18-year-olds don't do this kind of stuff. Normal 18-year-olds aren't concerned with things like purity. Normal 18, 18-year-olds aren't concerned with reading the Bible and what does God say about my life and what does God want me, want me to do. Most 18-year-olds are worried about what is everybody else, what's going to be honorable to do, what's going to make me a lot of money, what's going to make me popular. But what, what if people's, people know, look, especially in teenagers, people notice when you stand out. You think you're going to stand out because you wear a certain kind of clothes or you got a tattoo here, or you got something there, you, you know, you're going to be different like everybody else. But character, character is what makes kids stand out. Godly character is unique, especially among teenagers. So I, I, that's a little bit of an aside, but nonetheless, now mom has become a follower of Jesus as as a result of her kids being followers, the boys. And they come bringing spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, which which the first day of the week, it's not Monday, Sunday. That's why we celebrate church on Sunday. This is the Lord's Day. The Sabbath is the, the Saturday, it's the seventh day. The first day is Sunday. That's why every Sunday when we meet, it's a reminder that Jesus Christ is alive. Not just Easter Sunday. Every Sunday, we are, rem- we are reminded that we worship on Sunday because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
And he rose from the dead when? First day of the week. That's why we worship on Sunday. So they come, uh, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. How did they know where the tomb was? They watched him be buried. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? So as they're coming, like they're just coming. They don't even, they hadn't processed it through. They hadn't thought it through. Sort of grief is going on and they're not necessarily rational. The body's already been anointed by Joseph and Nicodemus, but they've brought some more spices. Again, just an act of honor to this man that they followed and they loved and who loved them. So they're not thinking it through. There's this huge stone. They're like, girls, we can't push this thing away. Now, they don't know that Pilate had set a guard there. And, and when this angel comes, we're going to read about it in a second, that guard had fallen over like dead men and was shaking, which is really kind of scary. So they're saying, well, who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb for us? Verse 4 says, but when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large, just in case you were wondering. So not just a pebble, not a little tiny stone. This is a really big stone. How many tons did it weigh? We don't know. But we learn that there was a great earthquake and an angel came. Angels are pretty strong. And, and, and the stone was rolled away. And I'll just repeat it because it bears repeating. Uh, and I think most of you know and understand that the, the stone didn't get rolled away so Jesus could come out. The stone got rolled away so that the women and the disciples could get in. Jesus, is he, we're going to see him in his resurrected body passing through walls and things like that. So stone, no problem for, for Jesus to get out. The problem was if they didn't roll the stone away, they couldn't have observed that he was missing. Verse 5 says, In entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed. They saw, again, notice, they saw the stone had been rolled away. They saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side another gospel tells us his countenance was like lightning and they were alarmed do you think i mean this is like you know the brain is the eyes are observing but the brain is sort of you know short-circuiting what in the world is going on here what is happening and all the guards are there and by the way um john MacArthur preached a sermon i've never forgot the title the lie that proves the resurrection these guards they, go, they have to go back. Now, this is a crack troop of guards. I mean, these guys are the best of the best. And they're set to guard this tomb. They put a seal on it. They're guarding this tomb. No one comes in. No one comes out. And they knew if you're guarding a prisoner and that prisoner escapes, then you get the punishment that that prisoner was supposed to get. If that body is gone, they die. So they go back to Pilate and the Jews, and they have to say, well, the body's gone what? The body's gone. Where did it go? Oh, we don't know. It's gone. And there's an angel there. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's do this. Why don't you tell everybody that while you were sleeping, the disciples came and stole the body? Are you kidding me? So they set that lie up. They pay him off to tell the lie. And to this day, people say, well, it must be that the disciples stole the body. The disciples were not expecting a resurrection. The disciples had scattered. They weren't anywhere close by. So that's the lie that proves the resurrection. Just a neat, neat title. I like that. So he said to them, Do not be alarmed, as if that would help. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, whom was crucified. He is risen. So he's got to give the explanation. I mean, where did he go? 
because nothing else makes sense. Where did he go? Did he get stolen? Did he di- how did he disappear? Did someone take the body? Did someone roll the stone away? I mean, anything else would have made more sense to them than he has ridden, even though, risen, even though Jesus said he would. Anything else would have made more sense than he has risen. So the angel tells him, he has risen, he is not here. Look at the next word. See the place where they laid him. See the place where they laid him. He's not there. The grave clothes are there, folded up nicely. He made his bed before he got out of it. But the body is gone. Some say the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Some say Jesus just swooned. He, just, uh, he was not really dead after having his heart pierced with a sword. That takes more faith to believe than he's risen from the dead. There's all of these theories try to explain it away. And none of them are, are, are worth a quarter. The truth is, he's risen. Now, people will try to make you prove that he, he's risen. And I tell them, can you prove he didn't? You know, why not put it back on them? You proved to me he didn't rise from the dead. How are you going to prove that? But for those that like proof, we have these, these continual eyewitness accounts. We have Joseph of Arimathea, who becomes, church history says, becomes a disciple. Do you, again, do you think? I mean, of course. You have Simon the Cy- from Cyrene, who becomes well-known in the church, who carried the cross, who no doubt hung out. Alexander and Rufus, his kids, all part of that day. The women, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter's established. They witness it. Now, one question comes up. All this is eyewitness accounts. And in a court of law, you know, there's a lot of weight on eyewitness accounts. But here's the interesting thing. In this day and age, psychologists and, and judges and attorneys are questioning the validity of eyewitness accounts. And that's what a lot of people say. Well, we found that eyewitness accounts aren't trustworthy. And we've done this study and we, had a, we staged um, a, uh, a robbery uh, in, on a college campus with 140 college students looking on. And then we had them, after two weeks, come back and try to identify who was the perpetrator, and 70% of them got it wrong. So you say, oh no, maybe you can't trust eyewitnesses. Those are eyewitnesses to identify a person. This is not a situation where they're trying to identify the person. Everybody knows who the person is. These are eyewitness accounts of an event that happened over the course of days, multiple events that that happened and were observed by multiple people all giving similar accounts to what happened. It's a different situation. So don't let someone stumble you by saying, well, you can't trust eyewitness accounts. Baloney. Maybe if Jesus ran to the cross and ran away real fast, or maybe if Jesus had mugged somebody. You know, that happens fast, and things are going on, and your brain is, you know, is kicking in a thousand degrees, and, you know, fears, and, and hormones, and chemicals, and all that stuff, and, and it messes with the memory. But this is a whole different situation than that. So here's what's interesting. In that way, maybe not reliable, but for this, very reliable. 1 Corinthians 15, you have it marked, right? Because I want to show you just how far back our understanding of the historical validity of the resurrection goes. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul, and by the way, the Apostle Paul wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament. Even atheists agree and don't doubt that the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. The, the writing of this book, the authorship of this book, is not questioned. 
And he says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Now, what he's about to say, that little introduction, this is what we call an early Christian creed. They didn't have the Bible. They couldn't say, well, well, go home and read the Gospel of John. They didn't have it yet. When the Apostle Paul got saved, Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, scholars differ on how long it was until that time. Some say as soon as a year after Acts chapter 1, after Pentecost. Others say conservatively two to three years later. So Paul gets saved two to three years after the resurrection. So we're talking A.D. 33, 32, 33, somewhere in that, in that vicinity. And he didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. He was, you know, he, he was saved on the road to Damascus. He didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. He spent three years in Arabia. That's what we learn in Galatians. So now we're at, you know, 36 uh, A.D., roughly. And then... He goes. So in 36 AD, he goes to Jerusalem and he meets with Peter and James. And they give him this early Christian creed. So as early as three years after. But the creed, these kind of creeds were developed as early as six months after the, the resurrection. I mean, within six months, the church now is teaching and perpetuating the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they have to have a way to teach and train other converts so they develop these little uh, memorizable creeds or sayings, and many of them are in the Bible. And this is one of them. Here's what I, re- I gave to you, the thing I received. When did I receive it? I received it three years after Christ was raised from the dead. I received it from the mouth of Peter and James themselves. James, who was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the pastor uh, of the church in Jerusalem. That's who told them these things. Talk about accurate eyewitness accounts. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was, uh, arose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Cephas is Peter. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul goes through to the church in Corinth. He's writing in roughly 55 A.D., writing this letter. Again, that's accepted. But he probably is there in 52 or so A.D. So this is just simply about 21 years he writes these things, or he visits Corinth 21 years later, and he gives them this information. And he had gone back to Jerusalem. He'd, he'd been in Jerusalem. He gets the information he goes and he preaches and he plants churches and then 14 years later, he goes back to see if any, to recompare the gospel stories. Am I still saying the same thing that they're saying in Jerusalem? And the answer was yes, that we were still preaching the same thing 18 years later from when he got saved. The story hadn't changed. So the accounts of the resurrection, according to eyewitness testimony, of people that were alive in that day, go back to as early as, well, the eyewitness testimonies go back to the crucifixion and the resurrection, but then the creeds that developed out of that are within six months or so. If you don't believe me, I'm not, I didn't make this up. Uh, there are men, women who study these things. Gary Habermas, you might know his name. You can just Google him on YouTube and you can listen to the, an hour-long uh, sermon or message on these things where he gives all the historical data and on all of that. So, you know, you have to decide what you do with these things. You have to decide 
is this worth believing or not? And see, the problem is, is that, because people ask, well, if it's so true, I mean, if it's so accurate, and there's this, all this eyewitness evidence, and, and, and there's so much behind it, validity behind it, why don't people believe? Because people believe what they want to believe. They, you will see the information you want to see, and you will reject what you want to reject, whether it's true or not. And that's just the way the human heart works. Jesus said it in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you've got other motives, if you've got other issues, and you don't want to see God, you won't see Him. But a person with a pure heart that's come and says, God, I want to know the truth. You'll see it. You'll see it. It's right there. He's risen. Everything hinges on this. His resurrection is the proof of our future resurrection. If he didn't rise from the dead, then we're just going to be buried in the grave and that's where our bodies are going to decompose and there's no eternity and there's no afterlife and thank God that that tomb was empty because it proves that there is life after death. There is resurrection. Now, one more thing before we close. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. This is verse 6 who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples, look at this, and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So the ladies run, tell the disciples. Peter and John race back. John wins the race. Peter goes into the tomb first. But imagine, for put yourself in Peter's shoes. Remember the last time Peter had dealings with, had interaction with Jesus was after he denied him three times. And after that third denial, the rooster, the rooster cock-a-doodle-doos and Peter and Jesus catch eyes and Peter weeps bitterly. What have I done? And off Jesus goes to crucifixion. And to trial, to crucifixion. Peter ends up fleeing. No more interaction. Can you imagine what Peter would be wondering? I mean, go tell the disciples, but make sure Peter doesn't come. That traitor. How dare he? Now I'm a lot. But Jesus goes out of his way. And and he goes out of his way to say to some some of us this morning, maybe you've been backslidden. Maybe you got a friend who's backslidden. For years, living in sin, walked away from the Lord, could care less about God. And maybe this is a season in your life where you're coming back, but you don't know if God really wants you. After you've been away for so long, can I really come back? Can God still use me? Is he still interested in me? Does he love me? After all I've done, I've just, I've denied him. I've betrayed him. I, I didn't, I didn't believe for a season. Can I still come back? And this passage says to you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. He says, go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter, I'm alive. Peter, I want to meet you in Galilee. And Peter's like, ah, I'm in trouble. Go in there. So he is, the sheep have been scattered. The shepherd, shepherd is now going to regather the sheep. Fantastic. So we'll stop there for today. I'm going to invite the praise team to come up.
there's a lot more. If you read the other gospel accounts, Jesus makes all kinds of appearances. Paul mentioned them. He passes through walls. He's in a resurrected body. I did more studying about physics and string theory last night. I won't bore you with all that stuff about physicists that are now, their calculations are, are showing them that there are 10 or 11 dimensions. And, but we read the Bible and go, how could Jesus pass through walls? That couldn't be true. But a theoretical physicist says there's multiple dimensions and that maybe people can pass through walls and things. And we go, really? Wow, that's pretty fascinating. <clears throat> and look, here's the thing, folks. If God's word says it, it's just true. It just takes science sometimes some time to catch up with the word of God. But they'll get there eventually. But don't be discouraged if you read something in the Bible and it goes, well, I don't know, biologically, resurrection, I don't know how that can happen. I don't either. But that doesn't mean it's not true. That doesn't mean that God who gave first life to Adam, God who breathed life, if he created from nothing, Bringing life back, bring, creating a new body for us is no problem. And someday, science will figure out how, how it happens. Until then, we believe it by faith. Amen? Let's stand, and if this, uh, if this challenges you in any way, if you <clears throat> maybe you sit in church and you're here, but you're going, I still know about that resurrection thing. I hope you're challenged, because... Uh, Everything in our lives hinges on belief in the resurrection and we're surrounded by people in church that do not believe it. It's not symbolic, it's literal. Maybe Mother's Day. Moms, wouldn't it be a great gift to see your husband, your child, your, your mom or dad get saved? What better Mother's Day gift could there be than to see a family member come to know the Lord? So I'm going to be down in front and I'm just going to invite you... Um, to deal with in your mind the reality of the resurrection this Mother's Day. And uh, if the Lord is leading you to do so, today's a day you can put your trust in Christ, believing that everything is said is true, and you can stake your whole life on it, and you will not be sorry. You can stake your eternity on it and not be sorry. So I'll be down here if you'd like to pray, learn more. I'm not going to give you candy. <laughs> Got to see Warren for that. I'm fresh out of M&M's. But what I can promise you is the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life and a, and a new life, a new dynamic of life that you never could have anticipated. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray if anybody here is wrestling through issues of life, death, and eternity, I pray that you'd move them to hear that with their pure heart the validity of, of the history of this event, Lord, and that they would choose this day whom they would serve. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.